This is Inside Marketing, brought to you by Dentsu Aegis Network and Irish Times Media Solutions. Hello and welcome to Inside Marketing. This week, we're not going to talk about a specific topic. We're going to do a slightly different approach and I'm going to talk to somebody who's probably fair to say is a, a legend within the industry. I'm joined today by Rory Sutherland, who is the Vice Chairman of Ogilvy in the UK, which is described in an attractively vague job title that has allowed him to co-fund a behavioural science practice within the agency. Welcome, Rory. It's a pleasure to be on. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, So just before we get started and we get into the meat of what we're going to talk about, I listened to you in a podcast a while ago, and I always assumed you were an extrovert because I've seen you speaking to things and you're you're a great speaker um, and a great writer, and I assumed you were an extrovert, but that's not the case. So before we start, there's this thing about how's um, COVID and lockdown treating people? Does it make introverted people more introverted and, and are extroverted people really missing it? So how are you getting on? You've long been a believer in flexibility around the where and when people work. So, you know, this idea of having to go to work in it, to a place to go to work is quite kind of, you know, it, it's outdated and antiquated on the, the things I've read about you. So how are you finding working uh, well, in an agile world? It's an interesting thought. I mean, to be honest, my team have worked in a fairly agile fashion for the last two or three years. And I was a very early advocate of Zoom and of uh, remote working and video conferencing. And so about two years ago, what I discovered very early on was that if you said to your co-workers, uh, by the way, you're free to work remotely if you like, nobody ever did. And I couldn't really understand why until I discovered that everybody framed it as a kind of concession. Mm. And they felt that every time they took advantage of a day working at home, they were kind of burning brownie points. You know, they were kind of taking advantage of a favor. And it was only when I said to my colleagues, look, you don't quite understand. It's not that you're free to work from home. I actively prefer you to work from home some of the time because I think in a more varied setting, you'll get better work. Mm. If you're free to work in a place that suits your particular temperament, uh, according to whatever work it is you're having to do. And, you know, let's face it, introverts probably get burned out by five days in an open plan office. Mm. So one way of looking at it, oddly, is that if you're a blue collar worker, in a way, assuming you have a choice of job, you know, lorry driver, taxi driver, plumber, etc., you do have a certain amount of control through your choice of job um, as to how much autonomy you have over place and time. I mean, the supreme achievement, of course, is to be a plumber where you don't even turn up when you say you would. Um, but, um, but nonetheless, there is a degree of variety in outdoor versus indoor, the the nature of the work and how you actually spend your time and how much autonomy you have in blue-collar work. In white-collar work, we have still been fixated on that kind of Victorian idea of not only does your employer buy your time, but he stipulates the where and the when. Mm -hmm. And for a long time, I've thought that was slightly outdated because one of the discoveries is people value autonomy as much as they value leisure. Mm. So the freedom to work when you like in the day and where you like is in many cases, I think, more valuable to people than simple time off or a pay rise even. You know, particularly if you're a carer, a single mum, you know, if you have any particular circumstances at home that don't allow for complete autonomy, um, uh, you know, because you have commitments outside the workplace, then white collar work is particularly unsympathetic. But then I think a further knife was delivered into the heart of the introvert by the open plan office. Mm. 
Mm. And I think it's a failure, which is it's an attempt to solve for average, which actually solves for nothing, in that it's neither particularly sociable. In fact, research has shown, research done by Harvard, no less, has shown that when you introduce an open plan office system, the volume of conversation goes down and the volume of email goes up because people don't have privacy in which to talk. Mm-hmm. And people can't talk without disturbing people nearby. And nor is it a form of seclusion. And I generally think that work benefits from the extremes. You're either highly sociable and intensively sociable Mm -hmm. for measured periods of time, or you go off and seclude yourself and focus. And I think the open plan office, to be absolutely honest, I think it suited employers because it's a cheap way of cramming a lot of people into a lot of expensive real estate. And I think it's been post-rationalized with a load of stories about teamworking and collaboration. Mm. But I think in reality, I think it delivers neither of the states at which we're most productive. And it's particularly true, I think, for introverts. Mm. And it's worth remembering that in any group of people, it's much easier for the extroverts to bully the introverts than the other way around. You know, that any group behavior tends to default to the behavior of the more sociable. And I'm not, by the way, when I say I'm an introvert, that does not mean for a second I'm antisocial. I'm very, very happy being sociable, but for short, intense bursts of time. I can't keep it up. I can't keep it up for 10 hours at a stretch. And so... I find that, you know, human interaction tends to sap my energy rather than adding to it, to use the formal. And there was a wonderful thing at the beginning of COVID, which was a kind of internet meme, which said, uh, introverts, be nice to extroverts. They don't know how this works, (laughs) which I thought captured quite a lot of a basic truth, which is, you know, it's all very well saying, gosh, it's terrible being kind of locked down at home. But equally, for a large proportion of the population, it's a minority, but it's a significant proportion to be honest the whole state of affairs where you're in a kind of public eye for 36 hours of the week uh, is pretty unsuited to their temperament as well mm. and i might add great news for ireland yeah uh, as as an english-speaking country uh, with a highly educated populace in an ideal time zone I would uh, expect Ireland to be a fairly large beneficiary of a kind of Zoom-driven economy. Yeah, and we we'll, we are going to come on to that slightly later on in the context of advertising. But just when we think about the creative process uh, and your job, do you think that the new office concert, look, I know in theory the idea of everyone having to be in the same place at the same time is not the way forward. And it's going to be much more agile and maybe squad-based where you, know, you, you come in a couple of days and meet your teams. But do you find... Because I'm in strategy and I find that when I'm working on pitches or, or anything that's creative process, I find that very, very difficult to replicate remotely. I find it's really difficult just that kind of coming together when, when people collide and different perspectives interact with each other and spark off one another. I find that quite difficult to do remotely. How have you found that? If you're a close-knit team, you can replicate it fairly well. Uh, over Zoom. It's also worth remembering that certain things like brainstormings, for example, I've always had this hunch that what is the standard half-day or one-day brainstorm is exhausting and not very effectual Mm. and would be much better if split into two or three, kind of immersion, what you might call fermentation and ideation. And 
One of the reasons we cram a lot of meetings into single, big, large, long meetings is because of the coordination costs and the travel costs. Yeah. You know, it's something you can only afford to do once, particularly if anybody from overseas is involved, because you've now got airline tickets and God knows what else involved in the equation. And the ability to have three meetings a week apart uh, with colleagues and clients from all over the world and to meet for about an hour each time seems to me to be significantly better mm. um, rather than what we would have done in the old days. Um, I can't say what it was, but Ogilvy was involved in a very interesting internal project and we got about 25 creative people or more over four days working on a particular project, which emerged with something really rather good. And I did say at the end of this, you realise that had we done this in the pre-COVID age, we would have all had to fly to New York. Mm. Uh, it would have ruined four people's summer holidays. You know, three people wouldn't have been able to make it yeah. because they were on holiday with their family. And the whole process would have cost a quarter of a million dollars. Yeah. You know? yeah, so exactly. um, you have to, I mean, don't bear in mind, even the extreme kind of what I call the provisional wing of the Zoom army like me, Okay, even the real extremists never proposed five days a week all the time. Mm. We always thought there was an opportunity for good doses of co-location. Yeah. Uh, whether that has to be in the middle of a particularly inaccessible city is another question. But I'll leave I'll leave that for the real estate market to figure out. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great point. I think just on your point about brainstorms there, the whole creative process, one of the things that I'd love your view on is that like, and you spoke about this, the world is short-term obsessed. Um, I've talked about this quite a lot in the podcast where, you know, quarterly reports to, to the market and um, figures, and we're just paralyzed by short-termism. And advertising, you could argue, well, yet your point of view, it's become slightly less risky, I think we'd say. It just doesn't seem to push the boundaries as it used to. So, um, and on the one hand, you'd say, well, it's a cost, so a cost must demonstrate a return. But then that makes it pretty hard to be adventurous. So, just to catch on something you mentioned recently, which I particularly liked, I think you talk about, and I'm from a media agency, so we're, we're data obsessed. So, you know, sometimes yeah. I've, you've read that you say sometimes our, our quest for logic and our, and our quest for um, the answer and over-reliance on data and average mathematicians, not great mathematicians, but average mathematicians sometimes stifle creativity. And you mentioned loads of examples of brands that just shouldn't work. They're not rational. We are not rational beings. So, I mean, Dyson, Red Bull, et cetera, yeah. Starbucks. There was no one going around, you know, before Starbucks existed, going, why the hell can't I spend four bucks on a cup of coffee? Yeah. You know, um, it, none of those things really would have made sense and none of them would have been generated if they'd come from large organizations uh, rather than from entrepreneur entrepreneurs mm. in the sense that large organizations would have effectively smothered them in logic. Yeah. before they had a chance to prove their value. The one exception, I think, is Nespresso, which is interesting because it's a genuinely entrepreneurial billion-dollar idea which did come out of a larger organization. Um, the IBM PC would be another example mm. um, of a highly uh, entrepreneurial idea which came out of a large organization. But yeah. those instances are rare. disappointingly rare. Yeah. And I think part of the problem is and we've got to, that marketing is a probabilistic business uh, that has to exist within a deterministic business culture. Yeah. And in a sense, in the old days when there was a limit to how much data you could 
ultimately accrue and there was a limit to the purity of your measurement. You just had to accept this, that when we perform the act of advertising, to some degree we're taking a punt. Mm. You know, the odds may be on our side, but we can't know exactly how this will work or to what extent or on whom. Okay. Mm -hmm. And the very fact that that data is now available has sometimes forced people, I think, um, or has encouraged the wrong kind of mindset to try and shoehorn marketing into the same deterministic mental map that would occupy finance or logistics or something of that kind within business. Mm. And I argue that a significant proportion of marketing and the value of marketing, when I say it's probabilistic, I mean that you do it to get lucky. You can't be sure how precisely it will work in advance, and you can't always attribute success in retrospect. You simply know through generalizable data that companies that tend to outspend their market share in other words, excess share of voice, tend to grow more than companies who underspend their market share, you know, in other words, suboptimal share of voice, tend to shrink. Mm. Now, okay, you can't be absolutely sure how that works in the same way that for 30 years, nobody knew how aspirin worked and nobody knew how paracetamol worked. You simply knew at a generalizable level that this thing worked without knowing how it worked at the molecular level, Mm. okay? Now, in the same way, I think a large part of marketing and a large part of fame is simply there to increase your surface exposure to positive upside good fortune in ways that you can't predict in in advance and you can't necessarily explain in retrospect. Mm. I mean, if you're a famous company, you know, when your chief executive brings someone up, the person calls them back. You know, uh, people come to you with good ideas. People want to work with you. People come and suggest partnerships. You get invited to better conferences. You know, that kind of shit. Yeah, yeah. Okay? And it, it has an effect on everything, fame. It's a kind of general lubricant for luck. And you can't be sure in advance how your fame is going to pay off. So requiring that the only justifiable marketing spend is something with a predefined objective, and it's only measured to the extent that you can qualify and quantify the effect it had on the objective you set in advance is too restrictive a straitjacket to impose on marketing activity. And then the other thing I think that's gone wrong, by the way, is that it so happens that digital, which is the most measurable, is the most afflicted by the efficiency drive, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, the real virtue of digital is, to be honest, is that it's a potential Galapagos Islands for experimentation. So, to be honest, your digital marketing should have a small but significant failure rate built in Mm -hmm. for the purpose of learning. You should experiment with things that are literally slightly crazy from time to time in digital because if they don't work, you can kill them really fast. Mm -hmm. If they do work, it's the counterintuitive or unpredictable thing successes that really make a difference because no one else is in that space okay when when you think about risk taking so part of in your career and i I think you look back on the the famous admin and this is about like you know the industry maybe not having the same sense of self-worth but you think about the famous admin and they would have had seats at the top table with clients do you think the industry's lost a bit of it's just lost its seat at the top table that the cfo has disintermediated the the cmo and the cmo just cannot go toe-to-toe with with the the cfo anymore and how would you so you must have had lots of examples when you 
you really felt passionately about something and maybe the data didn't back it up or it went against, you know, logic and <laughs> accepted thinking. How do you convince somebody to take a chance, whether that's a, C a CFO or a client or whatever? So a large component of that, I suspect, is that the kind of companies that are large advertisers now are different to those which are major advertisers in the, let's say, the 1990s. So back in the 1990s, as late as I think 1993 or four, about two thirds of ad spend was packaged goods. It was the Unilevers, the Reckitts, you know, you can imagine the P&Gs or Brewers, for example, beer brands. Okay. Now, in those entities, marketing is a significant cost, and the marketing director is a senior guy, and there is a strong marketing culture within the organization to such an extent that the CEO had probably done a stint in marketing at some point in his life. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, if you look at where ad spend comes from nowadays, at media spend, um, it that's, I think, packaged goods and similar. I can't remember the last time I saw a beer ad, to be absolutely honest, okay, <laughs> on British TV. And packaged goods and discretionary expenditure goods are now down to about 25% of ad spend. And the slack's been taken up typically by companies from finance or tech, mm. mobile phone, you know, mobile phone networks, mobile phone handsets, yeah. uh, you know, uh, what would you say, you know, insurance comparison websites. And those companies have much more of a left brain culture to begin with. Mm. And by dint of having a culture that's founded quite often on either economics or a kind of technology and engineering mindset, those cultures tend to hate marketing because they tend to approach the world with an efficiency-driven model which sees marketing as an inefficiency. It's a cost yeah. to be minimized. Yeah. And so that's highly important because uh, I, I've always made the point that anybody who studied economics as a byproduct of their study of economics will become mildly hostile to advertising, as indeed some economists, George Akerlof and um, uh, going back a while, Nicholas Caldor, were openly hostile to advertising mm. because they saw it as essentially they didn't realize that value was created in the human head. Right. Their model had value being created in the factory yeah. and the consumer already knowing to the penny what they wanted and how much they're prepared right. to pay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, so once you adopt that model, which is all about supply, and you don't realize that de creating demand by you know, informing and changing preference. Uh, it, you've got to remember the model of economics assumes that everybody has stable preferences. Mm. So that makes, so in that model, advertising wouldn't need to exist. And so because it lies outside the model, it's therefore framed as illogicality or an inefficiency or at best a necessary evil. Yeah, cost. And uh, yeah, exactly. Um, so there's so much I could talk to you about, but there's a couple of things that resonated with me. Um, and I want to talk to you, staying on this note about risk-taking and something you mentioned a little bit earlier on about, about Ireland. So I have this idea, I want to pitch it to you. So um, I think Brand Ireland should position itself as a kind of a, a real-life beta market, like, you know, because it's obviously it's best to trial and launch things in the real world rather than asking people what they want, because we don't know what we want all the time and we certainly, we don't do what we say we'll do. So the ability to use Ireland as, Brand Ireland as the, the kind of ideal controlled experiment launch for NPD or tech or or anything like any product innovations, I think it's a great opportunity because we're we're small, we're ring fenced, we are pretty representative of of Europe generally. And it just seems like a really big opportunity. So I have a couple of questions. Do you think there's any opportunity in that? Would you would you buy into that logic? That makes perfect sense. I know one large brand which used to use New Zealand for the same purpose. 
Yeah. And the idea was it was rep- it was a kind of microcosm mm. of a developed economy uh, with the additional advantage it was geographically remote which meant that if anybody if anything went significantly wrong no one got no to one, hear no one knew about it, it. yeah. You know I mean if you think about it in a way I mean it's a terrible thing to say but um uh you know scandal in New Zealand doesn't really get you reading that page of the newspaper does it because no. the New Zealand idea of a scandal is probably you know at, at a, at a, a 100th the scale of an American scandal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and um, so, no, there's a lot to be said for that. And there's a lot to be said for uh, having those control cells, as it were, and, mm. you know, and test cells uh, around the world. But there's a lot to be said for doing that in a digital form in yeah. even more of a micro level. Yeah, and we, and have, we things- have them all here. We've all the Facebooks and Googles and everybody here. We, we tend to be... Um, more of a, a spoke market than a hub market or, or a lag, not a lead market. And I always think it's probably probably a missed opportunity, um, you know, to create that brand. Because what another point, and I just love your view on this, like Irish people were supposedly well-educated. We are, you know, scholars. We're a nation of writers, poets, are poets, maybe yeah. drunks, you know, but we, we have all these creative talents. And yet as an industry, I think we underperform. We don't, we just, I'd expect more from, from a nation with that on their CV, that this highly creative bunch of people that they, do you think we under, we punch below our weight as a nation? Well, as a national brand, rather like Scotland, you punch significantly above your population, undoubtedly, you know. Uh, I think there's no doubt about that. Uh, And so uh, it's probably fair to say that Ireland, and to an extent Scotland, have failed to monetize it fully. Mm. You're absolutely right in that you have this idea of a country, and both Ireland and Scotland have, of course, delivered well above the proportion of their population in terms of great people. And in terms of certainly in literary achievement, it's it's an extraordinary disproportionality. Uh, and quite a few other areas of achievement as well, I might add, including business, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you generate a remarkable number of kind of entrepreneurs and business people. And so it's probably fair to say that you could monetize that more. Mm. Uh, I think that is fair because um, turning Dublin into a kind of design center and, uh, you know, creative center uh, is an entirely sensible endeavor. Yeah, it seems like something that, you know, potentially if so, if I gave you a brief on that, you'd say, yeah, I think we can go on that because it, it just seems like an obvious solution. Um, on creativity again, and this is a small market problem that we have. So look, globalization is going to happen. It's yeah. happening. And there's, there's there's huge efficiencies of that. But when you take about like, I mean, when I started in the industry 20 years ago, we used to have brands like Cadbury Ireland you know, full marketing team in Ireland making ads for dairy milks specifically for Ireland because they'd say, oh no, you don't understand the local nuances. The ad you've made for the UK doesn't work. And pretty much every market was making its own ad, which meant that the production budgets were outrageously expensive. And and that was clearly, you know, not the right way to do it. But there seems to have been an overcorrection, this idea that, you know, particularly love your view because we make one ad in one country and we play that out everywhere in the world sometimes they're horrifically dubbed they just don't work and there's there's no sense of local or cultural nuance or no, relevance I agree. what's your view on that like oh, there, obviously there's a happy medium and um, it shouldn't it shouldn't be we shouldn't as we tend to do overcorrect but what's your thoughts on that I'll defer to Jeremy Bulmore a little bit on this. He made the point that there are global tribes. And so, for example, making IT advertising more centrally probably makes sense because the kind of IT and tech tribe has similar preoccupations Mm. and, you know, the kind of peculiarities are almost more a property of the target audience than they are a property of the nation. But I would I would agree with you that with things like the chocolate and beer example, 
Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, let's take an example of British beer advertising, John Smith's. Yeah. Okay. For, you know, a good two decades, uh, BMP was producing John Smith's advertising, which would have been, you know, to an extent, completely meaningless, or even Hovis, for example, mm. completely meaningless outside the UK. Mm. Really. Yeah. And, you know, it depends on the emotional relationship you have, and it depends on the homogeneity of the target audience, and it depends on your advertising's need to generate particular emotional resonances, I think, because you're absolutely right. I mean, I think the, the other danger is that because you then have to you rely on human universals as your insight, because your only worthwhile insight can't be about you know, what X means to British people, yeah. for example, okay? Um, because it can't be about that. Uh, you then have to make every ad about some kind of human universal, which makes ads more and more homogeneous. Mm -hmm. There's a lovely example, by the way, of a complete cultural failing. And I've just realized I've lost my cup of tea, um, but don't <laughs> worry. Now, tea drinking would be something where Ireland and the UK would be extraordinarily similar, mm. Okay. There's another story I heard from someone who was a creative director at Grey back in the day. I suppose this must be in the 1990s. And it's an unbelievably successful campaign for Sheba, which is a premium British cat, cat food. food. Yeah, And it's kind of bought... What they find with Sheba is that because these people almost had an unhealthy relationship with their cats, it was a slightly pervy relationship with their cats, <laughs> that when you put the price up, demand went up because people loved the idea that they were sacrificing their own diet right. to their cat, okay? And so the ad that ran in Britain had a, I think it was, thank you, had a pedigree British blue cat, and they filmed it for about 14 hours in a room with a sort of a model pretending to be its owner. And they edited it down to what they called the 60 seconds of moments that cat owners live for, which is your cat walking onto the arm of your chair and nuzzling up to your nose mm. or patting your face with its paw very gently. And so the 30 or 60 seconds of the ad consisted of what you might call cat owner porn. Okay? Right. And it was insanely successful. And then they ran it in Ireland. <laughs> okay? And it was barraged with viewer complaints. Now, I don't know if this is true, but certainly back in 1990, cats were generally considered marginally like vermin, okay? <laughs> okay, certainly in rural Ireland, there was something you had to keep the rodent population down, the idea of snogging a cat. Yeah, we're, more do we're, like do we're dog lovers, I think, more than cat lovers, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, it's, so the cat-loving thing, which is, by the way, very, very nationally dependent. You know, Germans are big cat lovers. It's not a uniquely British thing. But the interesting thing was that to a large part of the Irish audience, I'm sure a small part of the Irish audience understood this ad perfectly, but to a large part of the uh, Irish audience, this was like having an ad which featured someone snogging a rat, okay? <laughs> I mean, it was repellent. And so, actually, they were completely wrong-footed by this because, of mm. course, they'd assumed that Ireland and the UK, basically so the same yeah. rules prevail. Mm. And so, some of that local nuance and some of the ability, what you might call, I suppose what you could refer to as an analogy is the in-joke. You know, quite a lot of our jokes, there are general jokes. You can have professional comedians and they stand up and they've got an audience of 10,000 in a stadium and everybody finds it funny, okay? Yeah. But a hell of a lot of our jokes really are in-jokes. Actually, a hell of a lot of... It's very... American comedians can generally play in the UK... It's hard but not impossible for a UK comedian to play. So looking at comedy as an analogy would be interesting, which mm. is 
There are comedy universals, I think it's fair to say. You know, there are kind of what you might call, you know, Charlie Chaplin, you know, um, Oliver Hardy kind of, uh, you know, Lauren Hardy mm, yeah. kind of universals, which, uh, you know, Mr. Bean would be an example of just the comedy little man. Or going back earlier, that chap, Norman Wisdom, who is massively yeah. popular in Albania for some reason, okay? <sighs> But a hell of a lot of comedy, you know, if you take Stuart Lee, Irish comedy mm. plays very well in the UK by and large, you know, um, but there are elements to it which are very, very much around the in-joke. You know, yeah, it's yeah. funny because it says something about ourselves mm. that we recognise as being peculiar to ourselves. And when you lose that in advertising, you know, okay, you may be making a cost saving in terms of the production budget, yeah. but let's be honest, the production budget is only 10% of the goddamn media budget. Yeah. Maybe it's worth spending an extra 10% and spending 90% less on media yeah. to achieve a rich emotional effect. Yeah, you true. Know? Absolutely. Comedy is a great example because one of the exports from Ireland that, like, literally, again, you talk about brands that shouldn't work. This should never have worked. Father Ted picked up by Channel 4 in the UK. It just should never have worked because it's just like a little small remote island in, in Ireland and priests and all the in-jokes that go with that. And, mm. it, and it, it just worked. So I don't know. Yeah, you're right. Some things... Some things don't work, and or they shouldn't work, but they do. So I want to get your thoughts on this, because a lot of things that... The, 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 oh, the, media... big, the biggest surprise in comedy, of course, which was totally unexpected, was that Monty Python made it big in the United States. Right, yeah, yeah. They had assumed that what they produced was universally, basically, was exclusively British mm. in its humour. And they didn't even bother. They, they actually went... At one stage, Monty Python went to Holland, or it might have been Scandinavia, and we asked, Mr., you know, Mr. Cleese, tell me, why is it that the British find farting funny? Okay? <laughs> and they okay, give up on the overseas market. And yeah. then suddenly they became huge in the US, just as Seinfeld never made it out. Was Seinfeld big in Ireland? Yeah, it was It was kind of a cult hit. So it, it was it, a cult, it, oh, it, yeah. it never really made, but, but to curb your enthusiasm, was pretty massive, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Kirby enthusiasm is huge, but Seinfeld is a certain type of people. But yeah, it was either it was quite polarizing. So some yeah. of the people who loved it just loved it and, and never stopped talking about it. And then and there may have been an element to the fact that we now know a bit more about America through media, so that some of that stuff translates a bit more. Yeah, but you know, I mean, certainly if you're advertising in India, there will be product categories where. Yeah, to be absolutely honest, the mega rich are pretty uniform worldwide, aren't they? Mm. One of the advantages of luxury goods firms is that, you know, the slightly tossy rich are a pretty much a homogeneous global tribe. Okay. Mm, yeah. Whereas if you take a country like India, if you went down then, you've got linguistic difference, you've got all manner of nuance which would be incomprehensible to us. I met the guy who bought the killing for BBC Four, and he bought it from de the Danish state broadcaster for twenty-four thousand pounds. Mm. And he went on effectively to make them millions, because of course Netflix bought yeah. the rights to the series. And I asked him, I said, why did you choose to go over to Scandinavia and look for crime programs? And he said, and I think it's a bit similar with Father Ted. Right? He said, the great thing about Scandinavians for a British audience is they're just the right amount of weird. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, there are strange things about dress, and, you know, you know, uh, there seems to be a massive murder rate in darkly lit underground car parks. I mean, I'm terrified. But, you know, there's that slight gloominess to the whole thing. But yeah. at the same time, we basically know what they're up to, you know. Mm. Uh, whereas, you know, if you had a Korean crime series, there'd be a whole lot of stuff where we're going, 
why is he doing that? Yeah, yeah. just yeah, it's it's slightly very, yeah. No, it's a great point, yeah. and and on and again another point that comes up quite a lot. And I think I spoke about this last year in the podcast with somebody. We had a violent disagreement. So I'll get your view on it. Um, AI, machine learning, but particularly uh, creativity in machines. So I know I don't know if you remember that Honda ad that was done a couple of years ago, and it was famously written. The whole thing was done by AI. There's been songs, a song called Daddy's Cars, one of the first ones written completely by AI. There's been books written. There's been art. And it's an interesting question about can a machine be creative? Because that's certainly where we, we'd like to think it's going, that we can automate creativity. Now, when I had a guy on last year talking about it, my argument was, well, it can't be creative because it, you have to feed it with all the stimulus. And if you must feed it with all the stimulus for it to, you know, previous examples, what you know, data, what worked, what didn't work then it can't be creative because it can't be it can't be original thought but he said well actually human beings are not really capable of creative thought because we are a function of our environment and our stimulus whether we know we're drawing upon it or not so where do you stand on machine learning so a huge part i mean it's incredibly complicated because a huge part of um creativity is highly derivative it's just essentially bringing two elements together uh, in an unexpected combination and so the most famous three word um uh, effectively, I think the proposal for the original Alien film described it simply as Jaws in space. Right, yeah. Okay? When you dig down, you know, there's a very large amount of formula behind a large amount of highly creative activity. Mm. And, you know, the interesting thing, I think, is that you might argue, as I would, that a lot of AI is looking for the wrong thing. It's looking for generalizable rules. Yeah. Okay? And actually what we should be looking for with AI is exceptions. Now, this comes down to a really interesting scientific divide. And I only learned this a couple of weeks ago from Matt Ridley, who's an evolutionary biologist in the UK. And he quoted someone, someone else who said, biology is the science of exceptions. Hmm. So whereas Newton or physics is the science of the universal, okay, what rules hold universally and can be captured mathematically? Darwin didn't do that. Darwin didn't look for a general theory of life. He went around strange places and looked for anomalies. Mm. And then it's the anomalies that are really telling. And I think in AI, we're looking in the wrong place. We're treating markets as if there's a science of generalization that's capable there, which I don't think there is for mm. all manner of reasons, largely, uh, you know, nighty and uncertainty and complexity and so forth. In any case, we're marketing to a changing environment. So a lot of things which held true before COVID, you know, the demand for business travel, for example, might be completely invalid data after COVID. Mm. Okay. Yeah. And in many ways, I think AI can be highly creative if it points out unusual things and allows us, therefore, to look for explanations for them. Mm. And so if we can refine our beliefs by looking where normality doesn't necessarily hold, that's a much more valuable piece of business information because the generalizable assumptions are generally shared by everybody. Mm -hmm. And therefore, they don't give you distinctiveness and they don't give you a new competitive space. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they don't give the opportunity to create a new market. Whereas a complete anomaly, Red Bull, okay, those are the really interesting things. Mm. They're, they're the things that really tell us something about human nature that most businesses aren't trying to glom onto. Yeah, and it's a great point because it is, and I think you touched on this before, It's that there's a difference between efficiency and effectiveness. And I think advertising has become quite efficient and like even machine learning. So the point that when we argued last year when I was talking about it was, 
like you can task a machine with with making a diesel engine cleaner and it will iterate and reiterate and reiterate, but it's unlikely to come up with an electric car. It's just not within its frame yep. of reference. And and that original thought, I think if, when we were talking last year on the movies, I was saying, well, Psycho was a great example because the patterns before were the monster was under your bed. It was a kind of vampirish, ghoulish, werewolf type of thing. And actually the monster being the normal guy and the whole plot of that movie flipped, that was, you know, it's hard to see how a machine would ever come up with that. So yeah, you're saying, I think it's an interesting point about looking at, we, we tend to look for the averages and the averages of averages of averages, which tends to just give you useless and, and vanilla data, which is the outliers are, are far more interesting. I think in some, case, in some cases, the average is a complete distraction because mm. the real action lies at the edges and the opposite of a good idea can be another good idea. Mm. So designing for the average is arguably a mistake, in fact, because the average person doesn't exist. Mm. Yeah, that's um, an interesting. Actually, interesting going point. back to the very beginning of our conversation, when you think about it, the open plan office is a design for the average. Mm. It's neither sociable nor is it secluded. Yeah, yeah. And so instead of creating the best of both worlds, you create something which is neither fish nor fowl. Yeah or neither flesh nor fowl, it always varies, that that uh, phrase. Yeah. But, you know, in some ways, I can't have a good little natter because I'll disturb someone else. Mm. But at the same time, I can't knuckle down and read a book for two hours, which is possibly what I need to do. Yeah, yeah. We haven't solved as an average of it. We've fixed neither um, you yeah. know, in that instance. Uh, it's interesting because the office workspace, I mean, I'm in it, I'm in an industry and I think I think we're worse in Ireland than than it is in the UK. When I think about the industry talks quite a lot about diversity and, and I know that's something that you're, you know, I read even your book about how your hiring policy, the advice you would give how we should not, you know, don't, don't hire 10 people to each hire one per- person, get one person to hire 10 people because you'll get greater diversity. And we talk a lot about diversity and I, I don't think, well, certainly in Ireland, the ad industry is, is not very diverse at all. We're diverse in kind of certain little pockets, but we're definitely not socioeconomically diverse and we are absolutely not diverse in terms of age. Like it, there's very few people in Ireland, there's very few people over 50. If they're not CEO level or, or head of something, they just leave the industry. So, I mean, I read a tweet last week and it was saying that, you know, the 50 plus are creative enough to dominate the Pulitzers and the BAFTAs and the Oscars, but they're not creative enough to write a banner ad. Um, why do you think the industry just does not value age and experience? And it's no country for all men, essentially, because we just there, there's very few of them around. It's just it's weird anomaly. There's an element to the agency world, which is payment by hour turns you into a kind of sort of Ponzi scheme, you know, a kind of pyramid scheme, because payment by the hour values time, not value creation. Mm. Um, and so there's something wrong. I mean, now, arguably, if you reorganize the ad industry, first of all, you had a slightly different form of payment, which is payment by the project, not payment by the hour. And you actually formed it from agile teams. I think you would find an age mix was much better. And by the way, flexible working would help because mm. when I think about it, a hell of a lot of the older people in advertising uh, one one reason I'm very excited by uh, the whole Zoom rev, uh, revolution is that there was a disproportionate disadvantage to you in any workspace. Um, one, if you're now, I'm 55, okay, I suddenly realized during this lockdown, I don't want to do the volume of international travel that I did before, mm. because I can now, I've had a meeting in India this morning, and I've had a meeting in, actually, where else have I been? Australia, okay, this yeah. morning already, okay? So I've been to India and Australia already. Like and now you're in Dublin. 
and now I'm in Dublin, okay? I can have a much more international life sitting at home in Kent than I can do by getting on a plane. And when you get on a plane, all you do is you discover what the airport's like and whether there's Uber and the fact that the five-star hotel there is pretty much like the five-star hotel anywhere else. Mm. You don't discover shit, to be absolutely honest, by, by, by short-term business travel. Yeah. Long-term, totally different. You discover a lot, I think, living overseas or even going for three weeks. And so... One of the things is anybody who's a single mum, anybody who's female and a parent particularly, okay, uh, anybody who's just a bit old and doesn't want to do the commute anymore, okay, is disadvantaged by things which have which have nothing to do with your ability to contribute or indeed even the hours you can contribute. They're simply that the industry doesn't offer you enough autonomy uh, mm. in order to deliver value at a level that's efficient for your given circumstances. Mm. Okay, so that's part of the problem. Now, agile teams, you know, my typical team would be, you know, my beha the behavioral science team or the consulting practice is a mixture of older people and younger people. And a really good team is a mixture of both, just as it's a mixture of social backgrounds, cultures, and imp most important of all, cognitive types. Okay. Mm, yeah. You know, you don't, you don't want the same cognitive type. You don't want homogeneity of kind of mental approach yeah, on a on a team and i think agile working as opposed to the standard kind of pyramid which has dominated the other thing is of course that um there are old people in advertising but they're all in management yeah yeah that's it. Or, or heads of or something yeah yeah there used to be i think it's fair to say the very well-paid 55 year old copywriter mm. who wasn't necessarily a creative director but he was a maybe he was a group head or he was head of copy or something like that and you kept those people on because to be honest you know one day in five they deliver something that nobody else could deliver yeah okay now if you're working towards a project or towards value creation those people are worth every penny if you're paid by the hour those people look expensive yeah yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Um, good point. And, and so there's something wrong with it's not, it's, you know, it's not necessarily the result of prejudice. There is, by the way, extraordinary prejudice in the ad industry towards good looking people. But nobody ever mentions that. It's the best attest. That's how I got in, Rory. That's how I got the job. <laughs> <laughs> now, so I, I would almost make the generalization that anybody who is over 50 and not gloriously attractive in advertising, by definition, is very, very good. Right, yeah. <laughs> because you've survived two made. If they were from an ethnic minority and over 50 and not conventionally good-looking, they're probably a genius, you know? Yeah, 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 true. Because, true. because they've – the, by the way, the best attested bias in psychology is towards attractive people. It's not actually ethnic or gender or anything else. Mm. It's that uh, attractive people come with a, just a huge innate advantage in any employment, you know, in any employment situation where all other things are equal – you know, the attractive guy wins. Yeah, yeah. And if you, you, you're not conscious of it, nor am I, because you're used to an ad agency being full of disproportionately attractive people. But it's interesting, because if you get people in to an ad agency and they're visiting from, let's say, an actuarial firm, yeah, okay, where people are probably hired on a slightly more robust framework, okay, um, they think they've wandered into a modeling agency. All right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we we are as shallow as we're as we're stereotyped as being. Well, it's industry. a Darwin. My friend Jeffrey Miller, who's a brilliant Darwinian psychologist, says that it's a kind of Darwinian power play to surround yourself with attractive people. It isn't necessarily sex. It isn't necessarily sexual as such. Mm. Okay, it's just that you know 
if you have an entourage, it's not like pit girls or something in Formula One, okay? Mm, yeah. Um, it changes your, it probably changes your mental state to a degree, being surrounded by attractive people. And it probably is a bit of a status display. Right. On the industry generally, like it's changed probably quite a lot. It has certainly in my time. Would you advise somebody now starting out, a young person, say your daughter, um, would you would you advise her to get into the industry or where do you see it going? Do you worry about the industry, the future of it? Is it, you know, given everything we talked about, the demise of the CMO, the rise in creativity and machines and the over-reliance on data and, you know, marketing losing its or advertising losing its sense of value or purpose. Do you see a future for it? Oh, yeah. Uh, by the way, by the way, to, to explain the slight socioeconomic imbalance in advertising, a part of that can be explained through simple, rational choice of uh, the participants in the industry. And let me explain this. Let's say you're the first generation Irish-born son of immigrant parents who moved to Dublin in 1975 and opened a restaurant or a shop or, you know, or drove a taxi, right? Mm-hmm. Both your parents and you will immediately be drawn to law, medicine, pharmacy, accountancy, any of those professions. Uh, Exactly the same with me, by the way. If I look at my Scottish ancestors who moved down from basically digging peat to keep warm in the east coast of Caithness, okay, and the first generation were shopkeepers, they became very successful as shopkeepers, and they got the kids to study medicine or law, Mm. all of them, all the males, all the females. Bear in mind, this was like 1910, right? All the females were sent to some sort of training program to get work, okay? Mm-hmm. And my aunt was subsequently a doctor, so it, it, it stretches, stretched on. Why? Because it, within those professions, if you work pretty hard and you're pretty intelligent and you're pretty capable, you will do pretty well, okay? There's a defined career path. And therefore, Given that what you want to do is to parlay your talents into something which will definitely get you a pretty good middle class salary in 15, 20 years' time, which medicine probably delivers, mm-hmm. unless you're, you know, unless you're, you know, some catastrophe happens. Okay. Yeah. Now, the reason middle class people go into advertising is you can afford to take the financial risk in exchange for cool points and the general inherent interest of the business. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because let's be honest, okay, advertising is not brilliantly meritocratic. There are total assholes who become very successful and there are brilliant people who fail. Yeah. You know, a hell of a lot of your success is circumstantial and down to fortune. It's not a very deterministic business. You know, I mean, some of the best people I've worked with, you know, nobody's ever heard of them. They're mm. famous people in advertising who are basically a bit shit, you know, okay? Yeah. yeah. And, or are just assholes in some way or other. And so you wouldn't want, given your circumstances, you wouldn't want to take that kind of risk. It's mm. rather like the two people who become actors tend to be either people who have very, very poor backgrounds, who are prepared to take the massive risk of becoming a superstar, or old Etonians who, in a weird way, you know, they're not going to run out of money. And so, uh, you know, old Etonians have a huge advantage in acting mm-hmm. because you have, you're going to be rich anyway, and you have the additional upside of becoming very rich and very sexy. Right, yeah, yeah. Okay? Yeah. So looked at from a point of view of just rational choice, uh, and the need to minimize the variance of your career, certain people from certain backgrounds may simply look at advertising and go, this doesn't make sense. Yeah, it makes total sense. Um, yeah, if your daughter asked for advice, would you say, yeah, it's a great industry, get into it? Or would you say, no, nah, don't? <laughs> uh, yeah, I'd, oh God. Uh, yeah, I'd, I mean, I, I wouldn't push 
uh, a child violently towards it. Right. Um, I'd say that as a balance between something which is both intrinsically interesting, mm. but generally economically tolerably remunerative, if you're lucky at it, yeah. not, you know, there's a large amount of luck there, um, and, um, uh, uh, you know, pretty much rewarding in as much as you're surrounded by interesting people in an interesting setting. Mm. Uh, yeah, I'd recommend it highly on that on that score. I've yeah. never gone to another working environment and gone, God, I really envy these guys. Right, you know? okay, yeah. yeah. No, I buy that. That'll do that. Uh, take silly, that uh, I mean, again, we're up against Silicon Valley. Would I envy? Yeah, yeah maybe, maybe a little bit, you know. But, um, I mean, if you think about it, part of the talent benefit of Silicon Valley Part of the benefit it enjoys is the very fact that it's highly profitable and they can pay very well. Mm. But there's something about that nature of work which is probably more appealing to the typical graduate age 22 mm. than, say, working in an actuarial firm. Yeah, uh, it is interesting. I, I know I have a, a good few friends that are in Google because their HQ is just down the road from our office. I know, um, yeah. And I think a, a lot of people have kind of, it, it's a great job when you're down in the, in the office, in the amazing offices, and you're surrounded by young, cool people, and you have a great social life, and you've got you're kind of deciding what will I have today for lunch? Will I have Italian or will I have pizza or whatever? And once all those things are gone, i.e., the, the free stuff around the office and the vending machines free and everything like that, I think a lot of them are realizing the job's not actually that good. It's it's more the attachments that go with the job that are the big draw for people. So a lot of people are realizing that it ain't working from home isn't brilliant because Google have lost that. I mean, they still pay really well, but a lot of the, the advantage they have is, is in the, the social aspect of that job and the, you know, the quality of the office that they have. So, And of course, it's worth remembering that the need for a social life is kind of greater for the young. Mm. Just as, I mean, one of the reasons, of course, advertising tends to lose the old is a very simple geographical one, particularly in London, which is it tends to be in the middle of very big cities. Yeah. And if you look at people as they get older and have families, uh, you know, the urge to move out, and perhaps go client side where you can live somewhere where you can drive to work and, uh, uh, you know, yeah. have a you know have a bit of a garden, uh, but also I think there's there's also I mean one one friend of mine who I won't name said that you know certain people leave advertising at a certain age because they just find it a bit silly. Right. Okay. Okay. You know they go. You know. Okay. By the way, uh, just to be clear about this, the whole age question. There are multiple explanations. It's endemic to the industry. It isn't peculiar to one holding company. Uh, it is an issue we need to re revisit. Um, because it's patently a problem. Yeah, okay? yeah definitely. Yeah. Um, and it patent involves a lot of talent wastage, which we now need to figure out. Uh, and I think, you know, there are multiple explanations for it. I don't, I'm not comfortable with anybody mm. who says it's all about prejudice or it's all about, you know, cost. Yeah. Some of it is, but there are, you know, there are probably five forces all working in the same direction. And maybe maybe COVID and that like spread out away from the, the city, like, you know, in central London is not where people want to live when they get a bit older. And maybe this will all help that. It'll help address some of the balance that we have. Because the only advantage of London over other places is in its crowded, unhealthy places. Mm. You know, theatre, parties, nightlife. Mm. They're all crowded, okay? Yeah. If you don't want crowdedness, then what's the point of London? It's just an inconvenient alternative to Amazon. Yeah. You know, right? Yeah. And it's interesting, of course, a lot of the people I know who have left advertising moved to the country. Mm -hmm. So there's something interesting going on there, mm. which is, you know, the lure of getting out. 
yeah. might, be a, might be a surprisingly, you know, might be part of its problem. You know, if you're a GP, you can move to, you know, you're a London GP at the age of 50, you can, exactly as my grandfather did. He was a GP in Tredegar, which was a Welsh mining town. And at the age of 50, he moved to Cricowl, which was a kind of Welsh market town. Right. Okay. Yeah. It's the kind of lifestyle decision you take when you're a bit older. Mm. And advertising doesn't allow you to do that at all. No, no, not at all. Um, now, we're, I've kept you for a long time, so I'm just going to get you final thoughts on something. Um, are you working on any more books? Or Because I'm a big fan of your writing. Or, or are you coming back to Dublin anytime soon? Because you've been here a good few times and spoke at a lot of different events. So what do you do now? When can we expect to see you back here? And will you have a new book anytime? I think I'm doing a virtual talk in Ireland in the next three or four weeks. And I can't remember the date details, but I'll try and dig it out for you. Great. And, um, well, I, I suppose probably until the end of the calendar year, I don't think I'll fly anywhere. I think no. that's the only, it's the only fair thing to say mm. on the grounds that, you know, if I make an exception for one, uh, then I'm there. Yeah, you're snookered. You've got everybody but, say exactly. Yeah. My, my argument is I don't want, I don't want to be known as patient zero here in right. some, you know, some <laughs> new second spike. <laughs> and so given that, you know, I, I think as far as you don't need to travel, don't mm. you know and as far as you don't want to travel don't yeah and i find this in some ways uh, a very agreeable way to work which is in some ways more sociable mm. than uh, the physical co-location in the office yeah yeah see taleb put it very well which is he said um on um, zoom you're talking to the people you want to talk to and you're talking that to them at a moment when they too want to talk Right, yeah, yeah. Now, in the office, there's that awkward thing of, do I disturb this person, or are they staring at some convoluted spreadsheet? Yeah, 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 exactly, yeah. Well, it is tricky, though, because, again, you got to ring everybody or arrange Teams calls when you can't. Those kind of informal just wander over to someone's desk and just say, can I can I pick your brain on this? As welcome or not as they may be, it, it is quite useful. I find I'm ringing people, and then when you've rang somebody on the phone, you, you kind of feel like you have to, you can't just be short and sweet. You got to drag it out for 15 minutes of pleasantries and whatnot. So just, you that, know. yeah, that needs to change by the way. And I said that interestingly to zoom when we met before COVID, I said, you need to create a default where you can invite people to a 10 minute call yeah. because at the moment, the default is an hour and it's too, it, it's too long. Mm. Now, if you think about it, the default of one hour comes from the physical meeting. Because if someone's actually travelled to meet you, yeah, you're yeah. a bit of a dickhead if you only talk to them for 20 <laughs> minutes. You know, yeah. It's rather like someone, you know, if someone had driven up, you're in Dublin, if someone yeah. had driven up from Cork to see you and you didn't offer them an hour of your time and a cup of tea, yeah. they think you're a bit of a dick, yeah, right? Yeah, true, true. Okay? And so there are certain obligations in terms of the duration and the amount of time we offer people, mm. which are actually derived from the physical world and need to be reinvented in the digital one. And I think the five-minute Zoom call, where at five minutes, you know, a timer clicks down and you can add a couple of minutes just yeah. to finish up the conversation. Yeah. The equivalent of being in the porch at a party and catching up with people, you know, yeah. as you leave. But I think there needs to be a kind of Zoomette I yeah. think someone needs to create that. Because I, I, I like that. I, I like that. I definitely like it because you do. It's a kind of social etiquette from you know from the from the physical interaction that. Yeah, you know, you haven't. I haven't flown out to Ireland to meet you. You haven't booked a meeting room. I've clicked on meet now. Okay, <laughs> so it doesn't require on your part that same level of kind of hospitality that would have been normal in the physical world. 
I would have got. I would have had a tea for you though. At least you definitely would have had a tea. I trust you. I or trust Guinness. you on that. If you're, well, if yeah. you're over, I'll keep an eye out. I'll ping you a note on um, LinkedIn anyway, and I'll keep an eye out when you're talking. Are you working on? Have you any more plans to write? Any more books or? Yeah, I'm, I'm puzzling over what the next one's about. Right. Okay. Well, I look forward to that one. Yeah, it, it, it's the difficult second album or third album in this case, um, but uh, I think I will find one or two to write about. So I will find enough to write about. Yeah, it's and there's no excuse because one I actually I downloaded it for Kindle, but one of my colleagues was read listened to it on Audible, and and I was like, oh, I should have done that. Like you reading it would be far better than me because I think you'd be funnier than me imagining you kind of. Well, saying I discovered it. I discovered a very interesting thing because when I recorded my own audio book, it's about three days to record an audio book. Okay, but what I discovered was really interesting. I, I was talking to the producer. And she explained to me that unless it's the author reading the audiobook, the actor who's doing the reading is only really measured on two things, clarity and fidelity to the original text. Hmm. So an actor can't even replace do not with don't. Right. Okay. Whereas when I, when I did my audiobook, I replaced do not with don't. I yeah. changed, I use obviously a high degree of kind of emphasis in sentences, hmm. making clear when it's a joke and when it's yeah. not a joke. Um, and also, I'd occasionally go off on a complete digression, which wasn't even present in the book. Yeah, right? no, I heard that. Yeah, I heard, and I feel like I'm missing out on that. No, and so the point about that, I think, is that it's a really, really interesting point, which is, now, interestingly, since writing the first book, I've largely discovered Otter AI-based voice dictation. So it's a voice recognition technology. Otter.ai is the mm. website. Okay. And um, first of all, you can write... Not perfectly, because no one can speak quite as they write. But your level of productivity is spectacular. Mm -hmm. So if you measure the number, if you upload this conversation to Mm otter.ai and you get a transcript, what you'll see is that we've been on for about an hour, okay? Mm -hmm. And it's probably about, uh, what would I guess, something like six to 10,000 words. Yeah. Okay. Now, if you'd ask me to write 10,000 words, I'd get off God's sake. You know, that's three days out of my life, yeah, right? Yeah. And so I discovered this interesting thing, which is that the way to write a book is probably to read out a book and then spend your time editing, not typing. Mm. But potentially, you could actually write a book, a hardback book in a day. Okay, it would take you 12 hours of fairly dedicated uh, dictation. But I suddenly realized that we never realized how slow typing is compared to speaking. Yeah, true, true. Well, yeah, but there's obviously the, well, not you, this is not aimed at you. Me, I tend to ramble, talk off the top of my head, and then it it's not, it's quite often it's not that coherent or there's no logic to it and I have to go back and, you know, edit it. And I prefer writing, I think, than, than talking, but because you just have more no, control no, on the, it. The best thing, though, is actually, um, if you can get rid of the pain of typing and you've got, yeah. let's say you've got to write 650 words and you talk for 10 minutes, everything you want to say, Okay, and in ten minutes you'll get somewhere between a thousand and fourteen hundred words. Mm. Okay, actually, Irish people will probably get a few more. Won't yeah, they? generally speak fairly quickly. We do. Okay, now what you've got is you've got twice as many words as you need, and you've got to do quite a bit of editing. Right. Yeah, and you've also got to do quite a bit of rejigging. But at least most of the goddamn words are there on the page. Yeah, true, true. And so you can spend more time doing the enjoyable and value-added bit of editing and less time doing the simple bit of typing. 
True. That's a that's a great point. Well, Rory, it has been a pleasure. It uh, has been a thank joy. you, Absolute thank pleasure. you so much. So I just want to say again, thanks to Rory Sutherland for joining us today. Thanks to our partners in Irish Times Media Solutions, and thanks to Kira on Sound. Rory, it's been great. Thanks a million. Thank you very much indeed. No Dave, problem. It's been a joy. Thanks, Kira. Great. Thanks a million. Absolute pleasure. Thanks Cheers, ever so much. Thanks. Bye bye. This is Inside Marketing, brought to you by Dentsu Aegis Network and Irish Times Media Solutions.